When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. The first two years of Risk episodes, the ones from October 2009 to October 2011, were behind a paywall for a while. So now, every other Thursday, we're rerunning them for free. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the first episode of our second year. It premiered in October of 2010, and it's called Dreams. Kids and kittens, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. That, of course, was Wormburner up top. Their new album's called Placed by the Gideons, and you can find it at wormburnerband.com. Sean Lee is behind me now. Well, we enter our second year today and into the realm of dreams. Today's stories go to that other world that exist only on the dark side of the noggin. Dreams in sleep and dreaminess awake. First up is the great Kurt Braunohler, the co-creator of the completely off-the-wall series Penelope, Princess of Pets on the BBC's Channel 4. We call Kurt's story The Seated Nude. A few years ago, I went to the Apple store to use the bathroom and walked into an unlocked handicap stall and found a man, totally naked, taking a shit and reading the paper. And what I didn't realize at the moment was that exact moment was the beginning of the end of a 13-year relationship that I had with my girlfriend. We'll get to that later. And let's get back to the guy shitting in the Apple store. And as I was trying to leave, it was an unlocked bathroom stall. Uh, so he obviously left it open for people to find him. Uh, and as I was trying to leave, you know, and close the door, I caught his face. And he had the most beautiful, happy smile on. Like he had a lifelong dream to do this. And today he had finally accomplished it and he was just overjoyed. And it was just a split second that I saw that and closed the door. And as I was walking away, I just started thinking about him 
And then over the next few days, I started like just kind of obsessing about him. Like he, it, the way his face looked, it was like everything in that moment was perfect. Do you know, it's like he had figured it out exactly. He had found bliss. He had found nirvana in this very specific way. Totally naked, reading the paper, taking a shit in a disabled toilet at the Apple store. And that was his ticket to pure happiness. And I was like, when was the last time I was ever that happy? And I couldn't remember. And then I just started thinking about that guy and what he had to go through. Like, how many trial and error sessions did he go through? Like, what was his preparation A through G before he found his preparation H, if you follow that metaphor? And then also I was thinking about it. It's like, this is obviously important to this guy. So, like, what? Does he have to fit this relaxing moment into kind of a hectic life? Like, well, it's six o'clock now. I gotta pick up the kids at eight. I got about an hour to either gym or naked shitting while reading the paper at the Apple store. I think I'm gonna know which one I'm going for. Uh, is he just stressed out? Can he do? But also, like, I identified with him as well. And I, I started thinking, like, thinking about my life and, like, what could, is there a way for me to learn enough about myself to know exactly the specific thing that would make me the happiest? Right? And, and I can understand him a little bit too because I personally, I love the freedom of being naked. I love that idea. I remember when I was a kid growing up in Neptune, New Jersey, I would go across the street to this very small woods, very tiny woods, and get totally naked and then just run through the woods by myself. And I just thought it was amazing. And I've always loved to get naked. And actually, a funny story, this was just last year and I was in the trunk of a Honda Civic going to a party. I highly recommend traveling in trunks, especially on the way to parties. It's the best. It's so comforting. It's like being, the only light is coming from the brakes. And so it's like a little bit of a womb, but it's like a womb that's taking you to a party, you know? And you just have to trust that everything's gonna be okay. Trust the people who are driving. And you just kind of let go. I love that moment. And, and so I was in this trunk. I was like, you know what would be hilarious? is that if we, when we got to the party, I was totally naked in this trunk. And it's a tiny trunk, it's a Honda Civic. I just barely fit in there, so I was like, great idea. So then I just started wiggling out of my clothes. It's very difficult to do. And I finally get all my clothes off, and then it's like a 20 minute ride to this party. And so I start having second thoughts, like maybe this isn't the best idea. Maybe these people don't share my unique brand of humor and will be creeped out by this. Um, but I couldn't get my clothes back on. It was difficult enough to get them off in that tiny space, but getting them back on was almost impossible. And then I found that this was like a, this was a, a new car and they had a handle inside the trunk, I guess for, I guess because that car was used in a lot of kidnappings or something. <laughs> Unsuccessful ones, you know? And so I was like, oh great, I can get out of here. So as we pulled in, I popped the trunk myself and run out of the car thinking I would run away, but instead ran in front of them. And so they don't see the, 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 the trunk pop up. There's just all of a sudden like a six foot four naked toddler running across there. That's what I look like when I'm naked. I look like a toddler, just no muscle definition. And so that was terrible. But I can understand the freedom associated with that. And so I started thinking about this guy a lot and kind of obsessing about him and thinking about my own life. And at this time, I had actually, I, I guess what I wanted really when I thought about him is I wanted my moment, like his moment. I wanted to, I wanted to think about my life. I wanted to leave like a, a <laughs> he was my Walden. He, he was my Walden. He made me want to live the, the, the examined life, right? Didn't Walden say that? The life worth, the unexamined life is not worth living. This naked shitting man at Union Square was my Walden. And, and so at the time I was dating, I had been dating this woman for 13 years. She was a beautiful, wonderful, successful, ambitious woman who I had met when I was 18. And I was 31 at the time. And I started thinking about our life and are we happy and is this exactly what like, and we hadn't gotten married. And, and we hadn't even thought about it really or talked about it. And whenever people would ask us, why aren't you married? We'd be like, well, we'll when we have kids, we'll get married. And then one day I was like, I don't know if that's true. Like, cause I started thinking about it. And so I came home one day and I was like, why aren't we married? And she said, well, I think before we do that, we should probably sleep with other people. Now, I know that that sounds like a weird thing to say. 
But I agreed with her. I was like, yeah. And I don't know why I agreed either. I mean, like, part of it is maybe because I've been in a relationship for 13 years. I only had sex with one person in my entire life. And so, like, just that idea of having sex with another person I was like, I'll try it. Maybe, maybe because both of us are kind of weirdly arrogant in the fact that we don't think rules of normal people apply to us. <laughs> that, we, yeah, we can go out and have sex with as many people as we want and then come back and get married. Of course, we're not humans. We're uber humans, you know? <laughs> I think it was a mixture of these things. And so, so we decided to do this. We decided to do this thing. We decided to go out and have sex with other people to decide whether or not we were going to get married, which seems ridiculous. But we, came, we justified it with this concept of rumspringa. And rumspringa, for those of you who don't know, is what the Amish do. So the Amish, when they turn 18, are allowed to go out. They have a rumspringa, and they go out in the world, and they're not Amish for two years. And then they get to choose whether or not they want to come back and be Amish, right? And so we decided to have a rumspringa with our relationship. Uh, now, for those of you who are wondering if this is a good idea, uh, let me just say, if you're taking relationship advice from an isolationist, crazy religion with a huge problem with methamphetamines, <laughs> you are making wrong choices in your life. Or you just want to break up and you're trying to figure out the weirdest fucking way to do it. So we did this thing. We did this thing. We went and the weird, and of course we're both we're both smart people and we're kind of weird and so we're like this is a matter of the heart but we're approaching with like concepts of the brain, and when we decide that uh, we decide to go out on we go out on a very romantic uh, trip to New Orleans for New Year's, and we go to New Orleans and it's fantastic. We have a great time, and then we come back June, January second and I move out, and then the idea would be that for thirty days we go out and have sex with other people. Because in 30 days, that's all you need, right? Because once, once you've had sex, you don't need any more. You get tired of it. 30 days is more than enough to make up for 18 years of only having sex with one person, right? No, not right. And so then we're in this crazy city, and I started learning. It was so weird. You know, at first it was like interesting. I was excited, honestly. I felt like I was a kid in the candy store, you know, like where all the candy has STDs. Um, <laughs> and I discovered something, because I'd never been single. I'd never been single. At 18 was the last time I was single. And a date at 18 is come over to my dorm room and we'll get high. Do you know what I mean? Like that was a, my concept of a date. I had no idea what a human adult does. But I found this amazing thing that in New York City, I learned anyone can have sex any night of the week if you follow two simple rules. One, stay at the bar until 4 a.m. And two, dramatically lower your standards. I saw walruses have sex. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about men who are fat and look like walruses. I'm talking about walruses on rascal scooters who have just come out of the ocean, driven up into a bar, and some hipster girl's like, I love a man with a beard, and hops on the walrus's lap, and then they travel out back, and at night, if you go at the right time at Rockaway Beach, you can see the tr tracks of the rascals come out and, and then a little heavier going back in. But it was amazing, you know, and, and then I was like, all of a sudden I was in this place where I could just like follow any, any impulse I wanted to. It was kind of crazy and weird. And we had agreed that we would do it for one month. Then we got back together and met after that one month and she was like, I think I need more time. And I was like, I think I need more time too. <laughs> so then we continued to date other people and sleep with other people, but then now we also started dating each other. And, and so we were dating each other, but then also sleeping with other people. I wasn't living. At the time I was living, I was squatting in an abandoned office building that my friend was the super of, who would give me the keys, and it was unheated, and it was February. And so I just had two space heaters that if I ran them at full blast for an hour, it would get the space up to about 60 degrees. And I would bring ladies back there. <laughs> So you can see where I was at in my life. You want to come home? Great, come on. Did you come? Hold on, we just got to wait an hour for it to get a little warm, and then we would just have to stay, and it was like a tiny little futon. And just like, I only had one blanket, and so it was like just trying to have sex, but like if any, at any time, did any of the blanket come off your skin, you would freeze, you would get very cold. So it was very awkward and awful. Um, 
And of course, I mean, like, the, as relationships go, this doesn't have, like, a pithy ending of how it happened. You know, we, we got back together after the second month, and I was like, I just took a gig in Australia. I'm going to be in, in Melbourne for a month doing shows. And, and she was like, okay, well, when you get back, we'll figure out what to do. And I was like, okay. And while I was there, I met an Australian who I fell in love with. And, uh, and that kind of ended that relationship and began a new one, which has ended already. Um, obviously. It obviously has. Um, but, but I do think about that guy still. You know, that guy at the Apple store in the handicapped stall, unlocked, totally naked, taking a shit and reading the paper. And sometimes when I go to that place, I want to, I hope I see him. Because if I saw him, I wouldn't just run away like I did the first time. You know, I think I would, I would look at him and I would shake his hand and I would say thank you. And then I would wash my hands like a lot and then run really far away. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. rearing was based off of these paranormal, superstitious, Catholic guilt-infused stories that were maybe meant to comfort us, but ultimately scared the shit out of us. If it wasn't God or baby Jesus, it was every dead relative we ever had watching us. Around the time I was eight, I had these beloved sea monkeys, and I would feed them religiously. But one day, I had them on this table, and the table got hit, and they fell onto this rug, and there was nothing anyone could do, and I was devastated. I remember kind of mourning and hanging out with my cabbage patch, thinking about life, and... I just remember how you can just sense that someone's looking at you, that you're not alone in a room. The temperature in the room just changes somehow. And I remember feeling that, that someone was there. And when I looked to see, I saw these three entities. And they were silent, as if their mouths were sewn closed. And they just leered at me. They were kind of terrifying and their eyes were dark. Anywhere I went after that day, they were with me. When I'd sleep, I could feel them over me. When I ate, they were underneath the table, even when I was in the bathroom, which became not only horrifying, but also embarrassing to be naked. I think about the story and I still get really scared. But then I start to break it down and remember what they used to look like. So let me explain. One of them looked like the Hamburglar. 
And I don't know if you're familiar with the Hamburglar, but he was a mascot for McDonald's. And he had this strawberry bob, and he wore this big sun hat, and he wore this house dress sort of thing with leggings with these horizontal prison stripes and this burglar mask on his face, but he had these ladies' evening gloves that he wore with his outfit. Just not a good thing to burglar in. And the other two people, they were these sleek Jane and James Bond sort of characters from like the 1960s spy show, The Avengers. They had these hollow eyes that just looked dead inside, and they were not friendly at all. I didn't want to sleep because I knew they would be there, and I didn't want to be awake because I knew I would see them, and there was no escape. So I decided to take control of my eight-year-old life, and I decided I needed to tell them to go away. This took all the courage I had, and I remember standing in my bedroom, looking out the back window, and I could see way in the backyard there was this house, and they were on the roof of the house, just hanging out. And they sat there, and I remember looking at them and knowingly staring at them in their hollow, vacant eyes and saying, you have to go. And it took everything I had in my small body to get that out, to get those words out. I think the first time I just thought them, and they seemed to get it, and they seemed to quiver. And then I, I, I mustered up all the strength that I had, and I said the words, You have to go. And in that moment, they seemed scared. They seemed scared and maybe a little angry, but there was some sort of power in my voice. There was some sort of strength by speaking out loud that made them understand that they had to leave. And I looked at them and they looked at me and I remember them floating into the air. And I could see them for quite a bit and they went into the gray sky and they went behind the clouds and they just disappeared. And in that moment, I felt something I had never felt before, that I could make choices, that I had a voice, that I had power over my life, and no one could tell me what to do. And I felt great. I felt bigger than eight. But as the sun continued to go down, and everything became dark, and everyone in my house started to go to bed, I realized, shit, What did I just do? Because like every horror movie, the monster never dies the first time. And I started freaking out. I didn't want to get into my pajamas. I didn't want to be alone. I remember laying in my bed, clutching onto the sheet. And when I was a kid, I had this philosophy that if I was as happy as possible, that monsters hated that, that they hated happiness. So I would sing this song that I would call the Care Bear song, which I don't think there actually ever was a Care Bear song. Really, I'd just string together concepts like rainbows and bears, and I would sing it with as much happiness as I possibly could but it was not working. And I could feel the darkness of the room close in on me, and I was just waiting for them. And I had this feeling that they were in my closet, and I felt like I could feel their breathing, and I could feel those hollow eyes staring at me. And I was just waiting for those Hamburglar evening gloves to crawl over the side of my bed and drag me down into the abyss. And in that moment, I thought, praying, I'll pray. That's what I'll do. That's my plan B. I'll pray. And each of us had a rosary in our bedroom. And I closed my eyes because I was afraid to open them. And I decided to say some Hail Marys. And I slowly opened my eyes and I looked across at the rosary in front of me on the wall. And I started to pray. I could have sworn for a second I saw a light. I saw a light coming from the wall. And then I realized it was a light crawling up the rosary. And there was like this glowing mist coming from this rosary and I swear to you this really happened as I prayed as I said the words over and over and over again as I held my hands tight I could see that this rosary started to glow this green glow this beautiful light as if somebody had turned a lamp on and the darkness in the room just fell apart and all of a sudden I could feel the sweat in my little body wash away And I felt like someone was holding me. It felt like 
somebody was there and somebody cared. And I let go of all of my fear. I woke up in the morning and I thought, damn, what just happened? That was amazing. I just talked to God. This is what they always talk about. This is what my parents taught me to believe in. I went downstairs and my mom was in the kitchen and, you know, I paced back and forth a little bit and kind of reached out to God in my head and thought, am I supposed to say this out loud? But I got the courage up and thought if I was going to tell anyone, I was going to tell my mom because maybe she knew, maybe this happens all the time. So I walked up to my mom and I I said in a whispered voice, I said, mom, um, I want to tell you something. I was really, really, really scared last night. And so I decided to pray. My mom really liked that. And I knew even at eight, it sounded crazy. I said, all of a sudden, it was like all these angels of light came down. The rosary just burst into light and it was beautiful. And my rosary glowed, it glowed. My rosary was glowing. And my mom said, oh, honey. That's a glow-in-the-dark rosary. Like I was some sort of fool. Everything I had ever believed in crashed to the ground. And at eight years old, I just lost my whole sense of understanding what was possible. It was meaningless. Everything. Everything in the world. And in that moment, I thought, maybe everything means nothing. And that you are alone. And life is just as hard as it feels. But... Instead, at eight, I decided to adopt a philosophy that I want to believe in magic and I'll go to psychics and I'll have faith. And I realized when I was eight that I felt safer knowing that there was actually a monster in my closet than believing that it wasn't true. This is Risk. That's Norwegian Recycling, sampling pretty much everyone on Earth. After Danielle Cook, with a story we call The Thief of Hacksteaks. And before that, even a great little tune from Lovelake called Things You Did. Now here comes Joe Mandy, a most lovable young man and one of the most popular comics in these parts. What parts? No. What parts is the name of the story? Think about it, jackass. So I've always been very uh, interested in dreams, uh, sort of because I don't really understand them or what they mean. I started getting into dreams in high school, actually. I, I took chemistry three years in high school and I wasn't good at it. I was also just kind of interested in that. And I got C's and B's and it fucked up my GPA, but I did it because I was interested. I think it was Chem 1, my, my teacher, Mr. Thendranathan, 
told us the story, we started doing the, the unit on chemical structure and chemical bonds, and she was saying that there was this guy who was obsessed with trying to find the chemical structure of butane. It might have been methane. Well, I, I'm not good at chemistry, obviously, uh, but something. Let's just call it butane. Um, and he couldn't figure it out, and he was obsessed with it. And then um, one night, he, he just said, fuck it, and he went to bed. And in, he had a dream, and in the dream, uh, he had a dream that was two snakes were eating each other, right? And then he woke up, and he was like, that's it, I got it. And I guess it's two snakes make a circle, and he was like, butane's a circle, and no one had ever thought of that. And uh, our teacher, Ms. Jethandranath, and she said, so as a joke, she was like, so everyone here, you, could, you should all start uh, dream journals. Because you, know, you never know, you might save the world someday. And everyone laughed, except for me, because I was like, fuck yeah, I am. I'm going to save the world. And so uh, in ninth grade, I started keeping a dream journal. And one night, I had this really intense dream where like, everyone on Earth was dying of like, this awful disease. It was like AIDS, but worse. It was like if you had AIDS, and then your AIDS got AIDS. Like, it was really bad, this terrible disease. And I was a scientist. And in the dream, like I was a scientist, I was trying to find the antidote, and I found it. And like it was like Bart Simpson at the beginning of Simpsons. I just kept writing the formula for the antidote so I wouldn't forget. And then I woke up, kind of like that scientist, and I was like, ah, I gotta, I gotta write down the antidote. And I was like looking for my dream journal, but it was all dark and I couldn't find it. So I just grabbed a permanent marker and then just wrote the antidote on my wood floor, and went back to sleep. And the next morning, I woke up, and there was just like, like a crazy person handwriting all over my floor, and it just said, cure to plips, P-L-I-P-P-S, uh, two parts sesame oil, one part Zuthzuria oil. So, that's not my story, that's just, I'm just saying that I'm, that's just to give you a sense of how I'm a big idiot, and my dreams are weird. But the real story, actually, my real story began on New Year's Eve, Y2K. It was 1999, New Year's Eve. I'm sure you all remember where you were. It's kind of an eventful night. No one knew if the world was going to explode or whatever. And I was actually uh, here in New York for the first time in my life. I was at a, like a nightclub in Times Square. It was a really awesome party my friends got me into. And uh, it was like around 11.30. I was dancing with these two girls. I had this like awesome velour suit on. And no, it was awesome. And then uh, I really had to use the bathroom. So I was like, ladies, I'll be right back. And I kind of, through the dark club, I got to the bathroom and opened it up. And uh, it was really bright. The bathroom was really bright. It was like surgical. You could, have, you could do surgery in this bathroom. It was very ornate. It was like white marble, gold fixtures. And uh, I got up to a urinal. You know, I pulled my penis. Can I say dick? Penis dick? Uh, <laughs> put my penis out because I had to pee and uh, like I was like a young man but like nothing would come out like I was just I was really having trouble and I was alone in this bathroom so I started talking to it and I was like come on let's go we can do this it's almost New Year's um, but nothing would happen and uh, a few minutes go by and I'm really struggling and all of a sudden the, the door opens from behind and uh, this dude comes and stands at the urinal right next to me, which is, there's like a bathroom etiquette, right? And that's, there's, if there's 10 urinals, don't go to the one next to, you know, it was just rude. So I'm standing there, I'm really struggling, I'm closing my eyes, but like I can sense that this guy is like kind of peeking over my shoulder, trying to like get a look at what I have in my hand and it's really, really uncomfortable. And like now I have to get into a fight on New Year's, like this is just bad. And uh, so I'm turning to my right to like, get into a fight with this person, and as I turn, it's, I see it's Angela Bassett, right? Uh, you might know her as Tina Turner from What's Love Got To Do With It, or Stella from How Stella Got Her Groove Back. And it's Angela Bassett, she's got these like long dreads and like this really kind of like one-piece leather thing going on and big boots, and uh, I'm like, hey, what? Angela Bassett, hi. What are you doing here? And she's like, just, just taking a piss. And so she's standing at this urinal and she starts Pissing, and I don't know what's going on, and I'm like, "How are you? Do what? What is? How are you doing that?" And she just shakes her head, and she's like, "I can't tell you." And I was like, "No, you? Is it like a shoehorn? Like honestly, like what are you doing?" And she goes, "I can't. I, I'll, I'll tell you, but under one condition." And I was like, "Yeah, sure, anything." She's like, "You have to just really focus and start peeing." And I was like, "No, I can't." 
because this is this is clearly a dream. Like obviously this is a dream. Like you, why are you in here? Why do I have a goatee and a velour suit on? Like none of this makes any sense. I'm not gonna pee because if I pee now, I'm gonna just wake up and piss my bed, and that's gonna be really embarrassing. And she was like, okay, well I guess you'll never know how a grown woman pees standing up. And I was, that was it. I was like, fine, fuck you, I'll do it. And so uh, I did. I started going, and uh, it felt great. And then she just started laughing. I just, I just remember her laughing at me. Her face just laughing at me. And then I woke up and I was 16 years old and I just pissed my bed for the first time in my life. It wasn't like a problem I had as a kid. Like I just fully turned on the light on my lamp and it was just like, it was like a fucking crime scene. It was just completely <laughs> drenched. And I didn't know what to do. It was like three in the morning and uh, I just was like, okay, well I gotta take care of this. And so first thing I did is I jumped out and I like took everything off and like threw it. This kind of instinctively and as I threw my underwear it like hit the door and it's like splat it was awful and then I was like okay 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 so I take the sheets off and I put them on the floor and I had to uh, tiptoe into the bathroom next door to my bedroom because I had to I had to tiptoe because my bedroom was right next to my parents room and it was a very old house kind of creaky floors and I was looking for like Windex or some kind of cleaning agent to kind of but there was nothing except mildew remover from the shower. So I went back and was just spraying mildew remover all over my mattress and soaking it up with all these towels. So then I just had all these towels, right? And sheets and dirty, just wet underwear. And I was like, uh, fuck, I have to do laundry. I had never done laundry in my life. In my house, we actually we called it the magic laundry cycle because it just it went down the chute and all of a sudden it was back. And... Our drawer, my mom just did all the laundry and that was just how it worked my whole life and so I was like fuck I'm gonna have to do laundry how I don't know how that works and so I got everything I you know just tiptoed all the way down to my basement and uh, did laundry for the first time threw everything into the washer and you know put soap in and I had this realization I was like oh yeah my parents are right I totally can do this I don't know what my problem is <laughs> It's very easy. Um, so I'm doing laundry, and I'm kind of, I'm like having fun with it, too. Like, I'm like, ooh, fabric softener. This will be, that's a treat. And uh, so I'm doing laundry, and there's a TV in the laundry room. So I'm watching TV, 3 in the morning, just eating some snacks. Really just feeling good about myself. Like I'm getting away with it. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, I hear footsteps coming down the stairs and I look up and it's my mom. My mom is downstairs, she's got these big glasses because she's legally blind. <laughs> so she's got these big thick glasses and this like nightgown. She's staring at me and she's just like, Joe, what are you doing? It's four in the morning. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm just, uh, just doing laundry. <laughs> just doing some laundry. And I was like, what, why, what would you be, why are you, what are you washing at four in the morning? And I was just like, oh, you know, clothes and sheets and stuff. And uh, my mom is a federal judge, so this all kind of, she kind of just internalized it. I could just see all the judgment going on inside her head. And she sort of nodded and she like kind of assessed the situation and started walking backwards as if like nothing had happened. And like I wanted to stop her and be like, no, it's not what you think. I didn't fucking, I didn't have a wet dream. Don't be gross. But then I was like, what, what would I tell her? No, it's not, I, Angela Bassett told me to piss, I pissed my bed, because Angela Bassett, I needed to know how a grown black woman pees standing up. Uh, so I guess, yeah, that's the story of the first time I ever did laundry. Thank you guys very much. <laughs> but you couldn't have been, could you? Harry, what is it? The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Oh, oh! I'm awfully sorry. I didn't mean to frighten you. Oh, it wasn't that. It's just that you're a a, a stranger. Mm-hmm. But don't you remember? We've met before. We... we have? Well, of course. You said so yourself. Once upon a dream. Who are you? My name is Pussy Galore. I must be dreaming. Is your mom 
monitored out of Cambodia. This has been verified as Colonel Kurtz's voice. I watched a snail crawl along the edge of a straight razor. That's my dream. It's my nightmare. Crawling, slithering along the edge of a straight razor. I specialize in a very specific type of security. Subconscious security. You're talking about dreams. Okay, so this story begins uh, with my first relationship, which was uh, very intense and uh, abusive relationship. But it, it, you know, it was just a lot to handle at 21 years old. Cause she could be mean, and I was very bad at uh, sort of defending myself. Uh, she she spat at me, and uh, you know, in my reaction, instead of being like, "Hey, what what the hell is that? God damn it!" You know, was just to sort of take it, you know, just be silent, and then like a few days later, be like, "Excuse me, I think we need to go." You know, it it wasn't acceptable. I mean, I, I was not. So shortly thereafter, the relationship sort of ended in flames, and uh, my my psyche was was quite uh, you know, it was in a fragile state, you know, because when you I don't know if you've ever experienced. You know, breaking up uh, from a really in involved relationship with somebody you haven't spent a moment away from in over a year. You know, it's like it, it does a lot to you. You know, towards the very end of this relationship, when things were just falling apart and I, I just, you know, I couldn't take it anymore, I had this one dream. It really sort of burned itself into my mind. It was one of those that you wake up from with a gasp. It starts with me and her on a beach. There's a campfire. It's nighttime, and I'm cooking a seagull. I start to eat the seagull. Halfway through eating it, I find there's a little note inside, and I pull it out, and it says, very specifically, how could I forget the moor? M-O-O-R, the moor. And I woke up from that and thought, you know, what the fuck is that supposed to mean? And then I started to analyze it, and I started to realize that actually, no, this was not nonsensical. This was a very specific message. Me and this girl, you know, we met at theater school. This is where I was at, at the time, and this is a seagull that I was cooking. Uh, very clearly represented the seagull from Chekhov's play. Uh, and at the time, I was doing a monologue of Trigorin, who is this character, this real sort of wimp. He's got like mommy issues. He's got girl issues. He lets the women walk all over him. And I saw myself burning the seagull as sort of a symbol. That I was like moving on with that phase of, of my personality. And the message, uh, the moor. How could I forget the moor? That obviously was Othello, uh, who was the another character that I was working on at the time, and that is the opposite. You know, Othello was he couldn't control his rage, and through his rage, killed his lover. Holy shit! My subconscious is speaking to me in code and giving me messages. And the message was that each dream that I was having every night was not just some sort of, you know, a parade of insanity and uh, nonsensical imagery. It was an actual, uh, you know, it was it was daily messages from my subconscious to me. And I was like, I need to figure out what they're saying all the time from now on because my subconscious has the answers. I would wake up and the first thing I would do is reach for my little notebook and be like, last night, uh, I was in a swamp and uh, the moon was, you know, and like, and just begin and getting really excited about like going to sleep at night, you know, and uh, so I figured if I could just analyze each one of these things, I would be really just an awesome guy with everything just working out great and great advice from otherworldly sources. One night... I went to sleep, and it was uh, another one of these experiences where I, you know, said, okay, well, here I go to dreamland, and closed my eyes, and, and that night I had my first lucid dream, which was a different experience altogether. Uh, a lucid dream is when you're in a dream, and all of a sudden you realize that you're dreaming. Your consciousness awakes, and you're like, oh my God, I'm in a dream right now. 
And usually what happens to people who have that experience, they immediately wake up because it's too much for, too much to handle. It's like, it's a physical sensation that's like really intense. I was uh, a centaur, which is a mythical creature that it's half man, half horse. And I was going, having this dream when suddenly my consciousness awakened and I was like, oh my God, I'm in a dream. Oh, and I'm also half horse. And like, I looked down and I had these legs, these horse legs, and I could feel the legs. I could feel the, the bones and the muscles moving through my legs. And I was galloping across this hill and I was just like screaming and shouting. I was like, yeah, ho, 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 you know, and like just galloping across this hill as the sun came up on the other side. And I did, and at this point I woke up and I was just like, holy fuck. I was a centaur, but I really felt what it was like to have that horse body. And I was like, all right, I need to, what is this? What, what happened to me last night? You know, here I was just analyzing my dreams, going along, you know, being like a modern day Freud. And suddenly I'm having this like insane mystical experience. I hooked up with this group of uh, other lucid dreamers that I found on the internet and they were having a meeting uh, where they were going to discuss their experiences. And I went very excited. They sounded pretty cool. One guy was talking about how he had gone into outer space, uh, which sounded great, until he uh, mentioned that he saw the, the teddy bear factory in outer space where they make all the teddy bears. And there were thousands of teddy bears. And I kind of lost him. And I was like, okay, what, what is this guy talking about? And after the meeting, I met another guy who, you know, was a self-proclaimed, very experienced lucid dreamer uh, who was walking around with a piece of uh, moon rock in his hand. You know, I noticed his fist was clenched. And he was like, oh, yes, it's very important for my spiritual powers to keep this moon rock at all times. But it, it shook me a little bit. I was like, where am, where am I headed here? Where, is this where I'm headed? Um, am I, am I going to be walking around with a moon rock? But, but I was still fascinated by the experiences themselves because I was having more lucid dreams and they were great. They were like so much fun. You know, I had one where I was flying. I flew through a magic forest. I saw these like giant trees and I went through a waterfall and I could feel the water on my face. And then another time I flew to Germany. I'm not, I didn't choose to go to Germany, but I ended up in Germany, but it was a lot of fun. And I would wake up from these dreams feeling invigorated and happy and like, you know, excited by the possibility possibilities of this world you know it started to become maybe a little bit too important in my life um you know i certainly wasn't uh, i wasn't firing up any new relationships my dream journal started to get really really long um i had something like you know 150 pages I, basically i was allowing my dreams to have a little bit too strong an effect on my waking life but like i just felt like things were getting weird and i guess as soon as i started to fear that the dream started to turn a little bit. The scariest ones being the dreams where I would wake up thinking that I was awake and then actually find that I was still dreaming and then be like, oh shit, and then I would wake up again and then I would wake up again and that would happen like five times in a row. And that sort of stuff was starting to freak me out. And so this one night I had a dream. Uh, there was a, a, a dream explorer's party happening in my house, I remember. I started you know, mingling in this party and uh, one guy turned to me and he said, you know, you, you better be careful. And I said, why? And he said, because she thinks you're going too far. And I said, who? And he pointed to the corner of my apartment where there's a chair. Sitting in it was this woman, this very creepy looking older woman with this long ragged white hair with this sort of um, something sort of covering her head. I couldn't really see her face that well. But she was pretty freaky, and uh, I just, in my mind, I thought, oh my god, that's a witch. That was like the first thought that I had. And she got up, and she started walking toward me, and I had that feeling, that sort of terror of, oh my god, is is this a dream? Is, am I, is this really my room? Is this a dream? What the fuck is going on? Before she could even open her mouth, I knew it was going to be fucking terrifying. I just woke up took a deep breath and looked in the corner where I had just been a second ago um, experiencing this and thought, holy fuck, um, I need to stop. <laughs> I need to call off the search temporarily. And that's when I decided, you know what? I think I've seen maybe enough of, uh, of this element of my subconscious. And I stopped recording my dreams that night. I did figure out some things about myself 
and um, do still from time to time feel like I get messages uh, from the dream world, but I don't go looking for them quite the same way as I once did. Skybox there, a song called In a Dream, off their new album, Morning After Cuts. Before that, Renaissance man Alessandro Minoli with something we call Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. Well, it's been a while since I've told a tale on the show, and we'll fix that now. This is called Inside the Circles. I'm five years old, and I'm downstairs in the basement at Sammy Buchanan's house. And I said to him, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we took off all our clothes? <laughs> See, Sammy was five also, and we just loved trying anything that might turn out being funny. And I thought it would be even funnier if we put this song on the record player, which was my favorite song at that time. <laughs> Uh, it's a Disney song. It's called Cinderella, Cinderella, and it's sung by mice. <laughs> Some of whom are pretty funny. So the next thing you know, we're naked and laughing and leaping around and having a great old time. Now, Sammy's mother rushes in on us, and she's screaming and yelling. So the next thing I knew, she didn't even want me playing with Sammy anymore. Now, I walked away from that realizing this, that getting naked with Sammy hadn't just been hilarious for me. Uh, it was exciting. So I thought, oh, am I a boy liking a boy like boys like girls? Because boys aren't supposed to like boys like that. And I had been putting together at that time, even at the age of five, the way that people use language, like if something was gross or uh, you wanted to laugh at it, it was gay or a fag. And the reason it was called those things was because it reminded people of boys liking boys. So in kindergarten and first grade, all throughout grade school, when I found myself again having these kind of you know, warm and fuzzy feelings toward uh, Tony Cafeo or Bobby Rodriguez or the kid who played Amal in the sixth grade's production of Amal and the Night Visitors, I felt, I felt like I was warped inside, like this uh, John Denver record that I had left out in the sun one day. Well, now I look back and I realize, you know, my real curse at that time was that at such a vulnerable age, I was just so aware of my feelings for boys and so aware of kind of the ugliness that's aimed at people like me. So I kind of spent my formative years terrified of myself. Now, the first grade was when I first started trying to stop liking boys. If a boy would pop up in my head, I would literally say, stop that, stop that. And in the fifth grade, right, it started to be around the time that everyone was having crushes on everyone else, so it was kind of expected that you liked someone else, right? So now I'm a Catholic, and I started literally praying. I started praying this thing called the Memorare, which goes something like this. Remember, O most gracious virgin, that never was it known that anyone who implored thy help was left unaided. 
so please help me start liking girls. <laughs> Amen. So anyway, in the fifth grade, the summer after the fifth grade, I'm at this parish picnic, and Carrie Hagel was there also. And Carrie was just cute. She was, there was no getting around it. She had these, you know, uh, soft brown eyes and this chipmunky face. And my friend Ben ran up to me around the time the sun was setting and he said, Kevin, Carrie likes you. Annie told me she was sitting on this tree that had fallen across a, a creek down in the woods. So I ran down there and I just sat beside her. And we kind of just let our legs kind of kicked back and forth over the water and we really didn't say very much and we didn't even touch but it was one of the most romantic moments of my entire life and I, th I found myself thinking you know what now if I can't start liking girls now when will I now there was a Brady Bunch episode that was on my mind a lot in those days and it's the one where Bobby who's the youngest boy uh, is convinced that he will never like kissing girls. And then one day he's taken by surprise. A girl runs up and kisses him and the screen fills with fireworks. And he says, what? This, is that how it works? So the next day he does an experiment and he runs up to her and surprises her and gives her a kiss. And again, it's raining sparks in the sky. Now, a kid in the fifth or sixth grade should know better than to take the Brady Bunch seriously. But I needed something, something to hope for, something to cling on to. So I thought to myself, well, if maybe I can get rid of all these thoughts about boys, if kissing girls turns out to really be like fireworks. Well, this girl, Catherine Alford, told everyone that at the beginning of the summer before sixth grade, she was going to have a party without parents. So this was going to be a first for all of my friends. And someone said there might be cans of beer there. And uh, she said we were going to play spin the bottle. So my friend Ben, he went out and did all the math research and figured out that eight of us were going to be having our first kiss that night. <laughs> so we're sitting around in a circle with candles on the concrete. And I look across the circle at Carrie Hagel, the girl that I had sat on the log with down by the creek. And she knows what's coming. And she just looked blissful. She was glowing. Me, my nerves were turned inside out. Well, when it was my turn, I got up and I went to that bottle and everyone could see that I didn't really spin the bottle. I really just kind of pointed it at her. <laughs> And so the two of us just kind of floated into the middle of the circle, closer and closer, face to face. And then we were kissing. It was happening. And, and her lips were warm and soft and wet. And I'm thinking, okay, now the fireworks, right? Fireworks weren't happening. I'm like, okay, okay, fireworks now. No. <laughs> then an image filled my mind and all throughout my mind what I saw was a wet dog's nose <laughs> I don't know why but it was just very vivid to me a big fleshy wet dog's nose and that was it and I smiled and I walked away and telling everyone, oh, that was awesome. That was, you know, beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> but inside, I was kind of dazed. Well, very late that night, I had a dream. And I'm in this big golden building, like a, like a department store. And I'm running in slow motion. And there's sunlight coming down from these giant windows. And then I notice I'm running after Sam Buchanan, who's in the sixth grade with me now, and he had been the little boy, Sammy, that I had loved laughing with when we were small. And I notice he's laughing now, and I see that he's running towards this slowly spinning, revolving door. And I follow him, and then I notice, whoop, I, I accidentally like slipped into the quarter of the revolving door that he was in. 
and then the door jammed. So for a moment, the two of us are stuck in this tiny glass room. And he turns to me and he smiles and he gently put my head in his hands and we were suddenly having the most electrifying kiss. And all around me and all throughout me, fireworks. Well, I bolted up in bed, awake, with tears already streaming down my face because I finally felt like I knew for good that I am what I am. Thank you. That's it for today, folks. This is Los Amigos Invisible behind me. I've been a fan of theirs for years, so it's an honor that they'd send us their music. This was Risk. I'm Kevin Allison. Our producers are Michelle Walson and David Crabb. Story editors Andy Croner and Jeff Mersel. Episode editor Mike Cades. And associate producers Madison Perry, Nina Moses, Jeff Glazer, Paul Gale, and Catherine Green. And don't forget what the portly one once said about risk. When at the checkout, I just type in the offer code R-I-S-K to get 50% off just about any item.